If you've been in church for a little while, you know what Holy Week is. Um, if you're non-liturgical, you may not. You can still be in church for a little while. If you're new to Christianity, uh, Holy Week, you think Easter, but we have a whole week of it starting today, which is Palm Sunday, and then we'll have Good Friday, and we'll have Easter. Now, some will have Monday, Thursday in there. That's not, I'm not down with that one, so if you do Monday, Thursday, God bless you, okay? And there's probably something on Tuesday and Monday also in some religions. But today is Palm Sunday. So we recognize Jesus' entry into Jerusalem today. And it's, uh, it's recorded in all four Gospels. It's a really big deal. And it's probably something we're so used to that we just kind of read through it and take it for granted. But today is Palm Sunday, and we'll do a little bit of a teaching on it, a little bit of a preaching, a little bit of a mix in there. And hopefully God will be speaking to all our hearts today, mine included. The sermon title is Blessed is the King, who is Jesus. He's our king, and this is a, uh, not a political king. We need to be thinking about that. I believe you know that, but just a reminder to get in the right frame of mind, they were looking for a political king. I think some of us are looking for a political king, but Jesus makes it very clear that he is the spiritual king. He's the king, the king of all kings, and we're going to see a little bit of this going on back in the day, how they had some tension with that. Some other things to look at today and think as you hear it and you process it is that God loves you. Jesus Christ loves you. And as we read this and we see him heading into Jerusalem, let's not forget that he was going to Jerusalem to die. So imagine as you sit here today and you knew that you had one week to live. You would be dead in a week. How would you be acting? You may not even be at church. You might be at home curled up under the bed in a fetal position rocking, right? You might be out of the casino. Who knows? But in this situation, Jesus knows what is going to go down in a week. Okay? And we want to look at his activity and what he's communicating and what he's doing and where he's putting his focus. And then I want you to consider the building momentum in this. Okay? So we, we start off at a place, a geographical place in the text. And as he gets closer to Jerusalem, there is a building momentum to this. So if you miss this today... You missed it. Because God was doing something very important that had been prophesied in the past already. So Jesus is going in. He has told his disciples he's going to be delivered to the chief priest and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And he's going to do that all for you. He did it all for me. And as we think about Palm Sunday... Let that sink in deep. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we're here today. Lord God, I praise you. I praise you that the power went out on the keyboard, God. It reminds us that what we need and don't need. Anything that happens in here today, God, anything good is because of you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll speak to us. I pray for the least interested person today. Lord God, that you'll touch their mind and touch their heart. I pray that you will wake us up spiritually, Father. Renew us and prepare us. I pray that we can get a taste of your glory today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So note that what we're about to read takes place during the week leading up to Passover. So there's a lot of people descending on Jerusalem. A lot of pilgrims are going to Jerusalem for Passover. So it's going to be uh, an estimation of 2 million people present in the city at this time. So it's, 
It's like uh, any county fair you've seen a thousand times over with the activity going on and all the people descending there. So we're looking at Luke chapter 19. I'll refer to the other gospels to bring out some details that are in the others, but I chose Luke 19 for a purpose. We're looking at Luke 19 starting with verse 28. After Jesus had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt, tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. Now, we know where this is going, and we're so used to it, but have we seen anywhere in Scripture anything like this yet? You know, Jesus sends them out two by two. He gives them authority over demons. He gives them power to heal. But never do we see, hey, go grab us a chicken, right? And here he's sending them on a mission to go get, as some translations say, a colt. But we know it's actually a donkey junior, right? It's a little baby donkey that he's sending them after. This alone is intriguing. This should perk us up a little bit going, Jesus wanted them to go get him a donkey, okay? Um, the last I remember of a donkey is Mary riding a donkey when she was pregnant with Jesus, right? So technically, he's been on a donkey before, right? <laughs> so he's sending them on a mission. Matthew says, you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her, okay? So we get a detail. Mama's present with the colt, okay? So there's a mama donkey and a baby donkey. John says, Jesus finding a young donkey, so the details there, nothing about the mission to go fetch the donkey, and there's a lot of discussions. I remember when I was sitting out there, a pastor I really like and respect and still do, but he took the idea that Jesus had gone in advance into town and made these arrangements. Okay, he could have, you don't know, do you? All right, let's be honest with the passage today. I felt the same way. I was like, no. <laughs> so as we look at, look at the scripture, we need to realize, okay, well, we don't know that. We, we don't know necessarily that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that he went ahead because he did so many other things in his divinity. That he knew there was a colt tied there exactly where it was at and that they would be inspired to release that donkey to them. But he sends them on a mission to go get a donkey, okay? Why not, Right? You know, maybe it's a test. Maybe, why is he sending us to get a donkey? But they go after it. Now, you start thinking about this in, in the day and age today. There are a lot of you who have no idea. I don't know if a lot, but some of you have no idea why a donkey. Why not a horse for a king, right? Why not a white stallion or a big black mustang? A powerful horse to take the king into Jerusalem. But we know from Scripture there's something to do with a donkey, and why it's a donkey. Now, can you guys get engaged on this? Am I going to lose you already? Tell me, why? Oh my gosh, he's talking about the donkey for 15 minutes. <laughs> in 1 Kings, it's written in chapter 1. This is how important donkeys were in relationship to kings. Then King David saw, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came into the king's presence. The king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel and blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Okay, that's a good point of reference, isn't it? When Solomon was anointed king, David said, Take my mule down there and get him. That's what they did. 
And when you're riding on a mule, you're not too threatening, are you? It's a message of peace. Okay? But in this day and age, we would look at a mule. Why would you? you know, if I went to a horse ranch and paid money, like five of us guys went, and we all paid like $50 each, and you guys got these big horses that are snorting and pulling and all, and they walked up with a donkey for me, I'd be like... But the bigger issue is in prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. Now, this is just blows you away. This was written like in 480 B.C., okay? as in before Christ. Zechariah prophesied this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Oh, 480 B.C., before this ever happened, prophecy, the Word of God, telling in advance what's going to happen. And Jesus is all about paying attention to the Word, right? That everything is fulfilled. John didn't want to baptize him. He's saying, no, let's do it at all Scripture. Everything has to be fulfilled, that the Word is fulfilled. All things are to be proper as the Father plans. Now, up until this point, do you remember any time when Jesus is like making a big deal about himself? Okay, he's, he was doing a lot of stuff to get attention, right? That would get you attention. But he's telling them, don't tell anyone. They confess him as Christ. Don't tell anyone. Someone gets healed. Don't you tell anyone, Leland. You go straight to the priest and do what you're supposed to do for your healing, but don't tell anyone. So we're looking at something here that's a pretty big deal. Jesus is now publicly declaring that he is the Messiah. Okay, he is about to die. Everything's going to come to culmination he's heading into Jerusalem this time and he's declaring through scripture and his actions that he's the king so he's riding in on a donkey not too impressive now is there going to come a time as you listen to this and we think about when the king's going to return Jesus as king's going to return to earth okay he is is he going to be riding on a donkey no, no. revelation 19:11 says and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. That time will come. But in this day, that's not what he was about. He was coming in peace to Jerusalem, making no mistake that he is the king of Israel. Reading on Luke 19, 32 to 35. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? Don't you love that? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus. So they have to go do this mission. They're heading out. Would you be kind of like a little concerned about this? I'm not going to have authority over demons and stuff. I'm trying to take somebody's property. You know, I'd be like me going out there. Don's going to his car and I'm, I'm hauling out of the, the parking lot with it going, I have need of your car, Don. <laughs> okay. Okay, Pastor. So they've got to go and they've got to ask for this donkey and they do get stopped. What are you doing here? What are you doing taking this donkey? And says, the Lord has need of it. Now I want you to think about that. The Lord has need of it. We could just stop right there and settle for a minute. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters in Christ. The Lord had need of that donkey. Now he could have just whipped up a donkey, right? If he wanted to. He could have appeared on it. Ping! He's sitting on the donkey. Let's go. But he had need of a donkey. And Scripture had to be fulfilled just as God prophesied through Zechariah. 
many, many years before this. So he sends them to get the donkey. And I want you to think about that. As you sit here today and you hear this on Palm Sunday, oh, it's Palm Sunday. Jim's probably going to preach on Palm Sunday. And what more could we say or think about? I noticed no one brought your palms. (laughs) We'll get on the palms in a minute. But you sit here today, do you think there's anything that the Lord has need of you? Oh, absolutely. There are things that the Lord has need of. Now, could he do it without you? Absolutely. But he wants to use you. And if you've given your life to Christ, you have his Holy Spirit inside of you, giving you fruit and gifts that he has need of you sharing with others and doing. Okay. So isn't that exciting to think about that? Today the Lord is saying, I have need of something from you. And I can't tell you what it is. I can't even guess what it is. But the Lord has need of something from you. Now the question is, are you willing to give it to him? All your life as a believer, the Lord has had need of some things from you. Have you, have I been giving it to him? Or we have been holding on to it. Like, oh, you can't take the donkey right now. I've heard of the Lord, I know about this, but we need him for 20 more minutes. Or may I interest you in this old mare over here? He'd rather ride her, right? This donkey's never been ridden. We do that, don't we? As you sit here as a believer, washed in the blood of Christ, God has need of things from you. And just like they gave that donkey, we just glossed over that, we need to give him what he's asking of us. And it's never too late. You don't want to get to heaven and God said, well, I had need of this and you didn't give it to me. And you're like, there's no do-over. And it's an exciting thing. Can you imagine when they got that donkey back? There she is. For five minas, you can ride the donkey too. That's what we do with it, right? So they get, it's okay to laugh in church, okay? If I'm being blasphemous, we don't laugh. But it's okay to laugh at ourselves and try to get involved in the story. Going back to verse 35. So they take the donkey back to Jesus. And then this strange kind of thing happens in our culture and day and age. And they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? We're used to that. But these disciples, they know Jesus is going to get on this colt. Never been ridden before. And there's premise for that in the Old Testament. When when we gave an animal to God, it should have been an unworked animal. So they they bring this donkey. They're like, we got it. Did they try to stop you? Yeah, but we told them the Lord needed it, and they gave it to us. Well, let's go. And so they take it to Jesus. And and some passages say the the mama was there with the the colt to keep it comfortable. Mark's not mentioning, or Luke's not mentioning that. And then they throw their coats on it, okay? Unnamed people, it's the disciples probably at this point, have got the donkey, and they're putting the coats on it. Okay, what's the name of the town here where all the donkeys run around wild and control the place? Oakman, okay, Um, whatever. (laughs) Some of you have been there. I know someone got bit there by a donkey, right? (laughs) Reason I ask that, have you ever smelled a donkey? Donkeys don't smell that good, do they? Dogs don't smell that good. Farm animals don't smell good. But these guys, what I'm getting at is took their coats off and put it on the donkey. On that sweaty back of that little donkey, they laid their coats for the Messiah, for, for the king, 
for Jesus. They did that for him. They took their material possession that they're going to put back on later and put it on the donkey so Jesus could sit on it and ride on it. They were pretty serious, weren't they? So they put their coats on it, and then it gets even crazier. It says as they're walking along, everybody's just throwing their coats down for the donkey to, to walk on. Isn't that something? Can you imagine, hey, you won't believe what I saw today. You did what with your coat? It's one thing to put a coat on a donkey, but then to take your coat and throw it in the road and let that donkey just hoof all over it in the dust and walk on it. And there's probably some other nasty things in that road too, right? And then they go pick their coat up later and shake it off and put it on. But something was going on. They didn't care. They didn't care. They're like, hey, this is a big deal. Spread out the red carpet for Jesus. He's coming to Jerusalem. So they're putting their coats down. And now do you ever ask yourselves, self, why did they do that? You ever asked yourself that? Now putting a coat, have you ever asked yourself that? I can imagine putting the coats on the the mule for Jesus, but throwing them in the road. There's precedent for that too in the Old Testament. It's believed that they were spreading their coats on the road as both a gesture of respect, yeah, and a symbolic act pledging submission to Jesus as their king. In 2 Kings 9.13, in reference of Jehu, it says, Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps, blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. So this has happened before. So we see a glimpse of their culture of what's going on. And they threw their coats down for him to walk on, to go up the steps. All right, so here's another one. Today is what? Okay, have you ever gotten that place in your Christian walk where you start asking these things? You know, why, why donkey? Why not a horse? Why do they throw their coats on the ground? Why is it called Palm Sunday? You ever got to that place? In the military, it was a big deal. You had to order your palms in advance. I ran into that all the time. I forgot to order the palms. And we're rushing. Got to order the palms. Did you get the palms? And you hand the palms out to everybody, and they get out there and do this with their palms and stuff and whip them around. And then, to not waste a buck, you collect all the palms. You don't get to take them home because then you send them somewhere. They get burned, and you have them for Ash Wednesday. And that was a big deal, so you had to make sure you had your palms. But we don't really know why they waved palms. Now, some of you are like, I know. Excuse me. We really don't know why they waved the palms. Does anybody confidently in here, and you can raise your hand, I'm not going to call on you, do you confidently know why they waved palms when Jesus was passing by? So they're doing some weird stuff. They're throwing their coats on the ground. He's coming through. They're waving palms. And we've got a, a little vague idea, and I just want to get around to it because this is going to be a big deal. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, verse 40, it was recorded that on the first day of the celebration of the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. All right, so there was a precedent. We see it tied in with the Feast of Tabernacles that they would wave branches before God. That's kind of neat, isn't it? You know, take that, Wiccans. We had it first. And 1 Kings 6.29 is recorded that Solomon had artists carve on the walls of the temple engravings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. So we're starting to see this connection with palms. In Psalm 92 verse 13, we see that a palm tree is symbolic of the righteous flourishing. It says the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. Okay, So the waving of the palm branches 
had something to do with them recognizing Jesus. And we all know that, but we have to ask ourselves sometimes, why were they doing it? It's also believed in that day and age, waving of palm branches was the welcome of visitors or kings, although all the resources I looked at really couldn't find anything to prove that. That's just a footnote out of some guy said this in a commentary. Okay? But here's what I do know. Okay? Are you guys getting psyched about palm branches yet? Don't lie now. In Revelation, one day you're going to have a palm branch. And I hope you remember this. I was talking about it today whenever they were going in. Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what a sight when we read this and we're like, I'm not really sure why they were doing it. I know it was, I know it was important. Grab it and hold on to it because one day you're going to be doing it. And we're going to be praising him just like they were then. That's Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 through 10. All right, so moving on. Verses 37 to 38. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So now the momentum's starting to build, right? They've got the cult. All these pilgrims are heading into Jerusalem. Two million people are going to be present. There's a lot of people on the road. They're heading in. They're getting excited. The disciples are getting excited. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? You are with these disciples were getting excited about what Jesus was doing. And he's always up to something. So the crowd of disciples, not one or two, woohoo, Jesus! They're all getting excited. I mean, this is the big week. And it looks like Jesus is going to do something because you know what? We want our country back. We want our king to come in and get, this is them talking, not us. Don't get excited. (laughs) You guys. The Israelites want their country back, okay? And so they're looking for a political king to come in and do it. Now, they're excited. They're praising God joyfully with a loud voice, right? Okay. Is it okay biblically to praise Jesus with a loud voice? Is it okay to praise Jesus with a quiet voice? Yes. Is it okay to praise Jesus with a silent meditation? Yes. yes. But in this situation, those of you who don't like people who praise Jesus with a loud voice, booyah, here it is. Okay? So your problem's not with him or her. Your problem's with the Word of God. Because Jesus is going to have something to say about it too. So they began to praise Jesus with a loud voice for What? What did the scripture say? Why are they praising him? They have a reason to. Because they had seen all the, fill in the blank, miracles miracles he had been doing. What's the big one he did just prior to this? Pretty big, right? And when he did that, that was a nail in the coffin. That was a nail in the cross. They're like, we want him dead. And let's kill Lazarus while we're at it. One of the stupidest things in the Bible I've seen recorded that they want to kill the Savior and kill the man he just resurrected. But these people had seen Jesus. So I ask you, 
Have you seen Jesus at work in your life? Has he resurrected you from a spiritual death? Has he brought you from a life of sin, something you never thought you could get away from, and he brought you out of that? Okay. Have you seen him save loved ones and change lives? Okay, well then, we would have reason also to praise him, right? So th these people are not just like, that was not the time here. They're excited. Okay, am I making fun of something? No, I'm not. But sometimes we need to get a little more excited. Okay. So they're excited about what God's been doing in their life. If you can't get excited about anything God's been doing in your life, then ask, why is that? And say, here I am, Lord. Make some changes. Clean my house and do some things in me. Okay. And then they're, they're, they're screaming out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the king. It's recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John that the people also shouted, Hosanna, like we did earlier. Okay? But I, I bet, I bet while we're singing that, we don't even know what we're singing because we're just used to it. When we shout Hosanna, we're thinking something like, uh, you are God or praise you. Hosanna really means save now. Save now. Save now. Boy, it's a time to be shouting out Hosanna, right? See, they're making a connection here. They didn't quite know what was going on, but they're feeling around with it, and they're trying to. And they're taking this from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Okay, this is Scripture that they're saying, and there's a reason that they're doing it. F.F. Um, F. Bruce says the word Hosanna is derived from the Hebrew exclamation, Save now, as recorded in Psalm 118. It may have been an appeal to God to save the Israelite people now that the Messiah had appeared among them, possibly. Some commentaries state that Psalm 118 was sung by the pilgrims on their way to the Jerusalem feast. They already had it on their minds, and so now they really have a reason to say it, right? It's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew that they were also shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now, we should know about that title, Son of David. Where did they get that from? Where did they get that from? We spent a lot of weeks on it. Thank you. Okay, so son of David is a prophetic term from Daniel's word. So these people knew the word. They were raised with the word, okay? And they're grappling with what's going on, and they're shouting some things they don't even realize. Some of them realize that they're shouting. Okay, you guys with me now? You and, this could be the last Palm Sunday you ever get, okay? So let's make the best of it. So they're excited, Verse 39, always happens now. Some of the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, teacher, clenched teeth, rebuke your people. Rebuke your disciples. Stop this, Jesus. I wonder if we could ever elicit that out of a Pharisee in here. Stop Dennis from shouting out Jesus. I've never heard that before. And you know what I say? I say, have you ever heard Dennis's story? Go talk to him. You might know why he's shouting out Jesus. Amen. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're telling God what to do. Because they didn't like it. So this means... 
that they understood implicitly that he was making claims to being the Messiah. They didn't like it. You need to stop it. You need to stop it now. We're in authority, and we're telling you to shut this down. Okay? Boy, some of us would have caved in a heartbeat when the Pharisees came up with their robes and their self-righteous anger. Some of us disciples would have been like, taking a step back. Well, they can get us in a lot of trouble. They're kicking people out of the synagogue now. So if they said quit, maybe we should just quit. Well, praise God, that's not what Jesus said. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So I got a rock in my office that says, he was without sin, cast the first stone. Someone saw I needed that. (laughs) I might need to start bringing it out here during service and just setting it out here. And we'll see if it starts to vibrate and go. If we're not doing a good enough job, we'll watch the rock and see what it does. There is a place for quiet worship. There's a place for meditation. But I'm telling you, from the Word of God, I'm standing here before God telling you there's a time to get down with it. David danced before the Lord, right? When he got chastised, hey, they could see your tidy whities under there when you're flipping all around. He said, I'll become even more undignified. I love that. We need a little more of that. You know, that's not being rude and mean, but it's like, you know what? I'll become even more undignified. You just, you just issued me a challenge. But Jesus tells him, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. That means the stones could cry out, right? That means they can. Creation is in anguish, waiting, waiting for the return of Jesus. All right, so note that many who were proclaiming their excitement still didn't get it, okay? We have people who will be very loud and exclamatory, and they don't get it, right? Because let some trouble come their way, and they're out the door. So just being loud doesn't mean anything either. In the Gospel of John, it's written that even the disciples did not understand all that was happening. This is after the fact. They looked back, and they still didn't understand all that was happening. The disciples still didn't understand all that was happening. We're starting to understand what was happening, right? We're getting a little memory retap this morning about what was happening. But they were even... A little confused at the time. John 12, 16 reads, These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things. Isn't that amazing when the word of God is being accomplished and the people who are doing it don't even realize they're doing it? Like Caiaphas, it's better that one man die than all the people die. He didn't even know what he was saying, but he prophesied about that. Okay? John also noted that people went out to meet Jesus. So there's a lot, of, a lot of people in town, and they were heading out. They hear what's going on in their head now. You guys with me on this? You with me? Are you with me? Are you with him? They're heading out. They see what's going on. Jesus can see them, but they're looking out, and they're like, what's this? What's going on? And in the Middle East, they get a lot more fun and excited than we do about things. I've seen them. They get, they get whipped up and all. And so they're all heading out. What are the masses that are heading out going to meet him? It's Jesus coming, the one who raised the dead. So they're going out to meet Jesus, okay? Because they're excited. 
they don't really know what's going on, but they're running out to see what's going on. And we're going to know that Jesus didn't have a big fan base in Israel, did he, in Jerusalem? Yeah, because there's a group in there. And, and again, you've read it. You've probably heard it sometimes. We don't know, but I believe it's possible. There were some shouting that day that related to shouting, crucify him within the week because they didn't know what was going on. Okay? When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. They still didn't get it, right? They were excited about a prophet. They were excited about a king. But this is the prophet. That's in Matthew. So what's the point? Not all were recognizing Jesus as a Messiah and certainly not the Messiah of their choosing. I'll read that one more time. Not all the people were recognizing Jesus as Messiah and certainly not the Messiah of their choosing. They were looking for a conquering king. The world out there has got Jesus pegged all wrong, right? Yeah, some people will tell you good things about Jesus, even maybe say some good things about church. That's fading out really fast, right? But they'll say, yeah, he was a, he was a wise man, a community builder. He even died for the people. They don't, they don't know about the resurrection. They're not acknowledging the resurrection. They're not understanding he's God in flesh. These people knew he was a prophet, but that's as far as they took it. So that's another touch point here right today, right? Where are we in 2021 on Palm Sunday? Have we gotten it? Have we understood who Jesus is? Not who he was. We slip into that sometimes. He was the king. No, he is the king. It's not this was stuff. It is and is to be when he comes back. So the point is they were looking for a conquering king. We got to be careful about that and check ourselves, right, church? When it comes to church and Jesus, it's all about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We got to be very careful what we want to commingle into that. Okay? It's Jesus first. All the politics and stuff, that's second, third, fourth, or fifth. Because we get kind of whipped up. Now, you know that's true, right? You guys know that's true. You got 15 minutes. I might even be done early. You know we get all whipped up about the politics and stuff. And there's certainly a reason to get whipped up about the politics. But we've got to remember what this is about. This is about our salvation, the blood of Christ, and other people who don't know him yet before we get sidetracked. So now an interesting thing's happened. Jesus has been hailed by all these people. They're waving palm fronds. They've thrown their coats on the ground. There's a whole group of people out there. The Romans are even watching. They probably think it's funny. Like, what is this? What is this? And Jesus gets to a point where he can see Jerusalem. He's looking down at Jerusalem. I haven't been there. Vicki has. She told me there's a place on this very path. She walked it where you get to where you can see a beautiful view of Jerusalem. It says, verse 41 to 44, When he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Boy, that turned on a dime, didn't it? 
If I did that, some of you guys would be getting mad. We need encouragement. We do need encouragement, right? But we need the unadulterated, unfiltered Word of God. And Jesus was not caught up in all of it. He didn't ignore the fact he is now speaking as prophet, as king, and as Messiah. When he looked over Jerusalem, he cried. Two times, as it mentioned in Scripture, he cried. The first time was before he raised Lazarus. And some people think it's because, oh, he really loved him. But it's believed he was crying over their lack of faith. That they didn't believe that he could raise him. And now he's looking over Jerusalem and he's crying. Nowhere do we see that Jesus cried about getting killed. Nowhere did we see Jesus cried because they're going to scourge me with a cat of nine tails. Nowhere did we see Jesus crying about he's going to be hanging on a cross. He's going to suffer death for us. He's going to bleed humiliating death before the military and before all the people. We don't see him crying about that, do we? Okay. But he's crying for them because he can see with a prophetic mind the city of everything that's going to happen to it. And he didn't have that righteous anger sometimes we have. Uh-huh. They got what they deserved. It's about time judgment fell. Lord, should we call down fire from heaven on them? That sound familiar? There's some out there. I probably thought about that here lately. I had to catch myself on. But Jesus sees them and he knows what's going to happen. And he cries. We have a Savior that was tempted in every way we are and without sin and he knew human emotions and walked in our flesh and his heart was stirred. And when he looked at that city, it says that he cried because he knew their future. Jesus entered as the king but turned immediately to his role as prophet and again pronounced judgment on the city. We got to keep it real, don't we? And all things. We praise God. We can praise him loud. We can praise him quietly. We got to keep Everything focused on the Word of God and what the Word of God says. Warren Wiersbe said, As Jesus looked ahead, he cried as he saw the terrible judgment that was coming to the nation, the city, and the temple. In A.D. 70, this is recorded in history, this is fact, the Romans would come and after a siege of 143 days, kill 600,000 Jews take thousands more captive, and then destroy the temple of the city. And they could have had peace. They could have had peace, but they chose to reject Jesus as Messiah. And they faced judgment for it. Jesus said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. How bad we need peace, right? And, And make no mistake, this is about, first, peace with God. Peace with God. Oh, Lord, have mercy on all of us, God. You are kind and you're loving and you're forgiving, God. Our sacrifice is often weak that we bring to the Lord. He's telling them they could have had peace with God. If you've sat in church, you've been told if you were listening. I hope you've been told. You've been told here and you're being told today. You can have peace with God. There's no other way you're going to find peace with God. It's not through church registry. It's not how much money you give. It's not what you did or you got a fountain or a statue, whatever silly stuff. And some of that stuff exists. You can have peace with God. You can have peace. Today, guys, are you listening to this? Some of you don't have peace with God yet because you have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
And one day, if this is not important to you now, it's going to be a big deal later whenever you are standing before the Lord. Now, Jesus had some other things to say about peace. Um, let me go to Paul. Paul said, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so you want peace with God, it's only through Jesus. In Colossians is written, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Jesus said, my peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. The Holy Spirit is giving us the fruit of peace. So we can have peace with God and not be consumed with that anymore. And we can have more. We can have peace in the middle of the storm with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to make a proclamation here. I'm not even going to make a guess. You are here today, some of you, and you do not have peace. You are a Christian. You've given your life to God but you don't have peace. And why not try him today? Why not give him a shot at it and ask him, Lord, I need some peace. And if you're having a hard time and you doubt all this stuff and you, you kind of smirk and you laugh at all this stuff and your life's a mess inside, your heart's hurting and your heart hurts when you see the world, you could have peace with God and it will fill the void and the places inside of you. And then he'll give you something productive to do about it other than just complain. So that day, Jesus did something new. He accepted the adoration and praise of the people. He accepted it on that day. But he knew that what he was doing meant something far different from what they thought. They were looking for a different kind of Messiah. Is it possible today from what you have heard in this short time that you may have been looking for a different Messiah? You might have been looking for a different kind of king than who Jesus is, the king of kings. Yes, Jesus was Israel's king. He is Israel's king, but his kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> Let me say, his kingdom is not of this world, and we're a part of it. I tell you what, I, I do get excited. I pray when I get up here, God, don't let me speak out of myself. Don't let me speak, and I, I often don't want to walk up here. I enjoy doing it, but I know I'm so unworthy to get up here and do it. I love my parents to death. I was not raised in a Christian home. My parents are now Christians. But this was not my life experience, okay, early on. And so I can get in here now and grasp the truth of, the truth of this, that he's, he's the king of kings and his kingdom is not of this world. Because you're going to be told, you're going to be pummeled and whittled down and whittled down with all these things that that's a lie, that's a myth. Where is this Jesus well, we're reminding everybody today, we know where he is, and he is coming back. And so we could get encouraged by that. The crowds were looking for political deliverance from Rome. I think we've been looking for some political deliverance too. Jesus had come to bring spiritual deliverance. So maybe, maybe we need to get our heads off of that. And start putting our heads in the kingdom of God and asking, here I am, Lord, send me. What do you need of me? What can I do? My sister said something a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, absolutely. She said, I think we have to get ready to do this on our own when the church is not available to us. As in the church is not available to meet in or go to. Are you prepared to do this without all of us? It's something to think about. The nation of Israel rejected Jesus as their king. 
What was true of the Jewish nation can also be true of individuals. As one commentary said. To miss Jesus is to miss the time of visitation and face accountability before God. Are you looking to Jesus Christ today? Okay. If you are, what are you looking to him for? Are you looking for him to make you a better you? To give you some of that cake you see that others have been eating? Are you looking for him? I'll take you, Jesus, whatever it costs, whatever may come. I know there's going to be some good, and I know there's going to be some bad, but I'm willing to take it all, Lord. I'm willing to self-evaluate, to reevaluate, and ask myself, what did I commit onto so many years back? What did you commit onto so many years back? What have you been looking to Jesus for? 2 Corinthians, last verse. I'm going to close, and we're having communion today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. The Apostle Paul said, We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you're here today, and reconcile is to be changed from an enemy to a friend. If you're here today and you're not reconciled to God, I don't care if you join this church. I don't care if we never see a dime out of your bank account. But we, with Paul, with Jesus, we beg you. We beg you to be reconciled with God through Jesus Christ.